0: It is the podcast that spans generations and asks the question funny how and has absolutely nothing to do with nepotism. We are Vince and Adam Cellini. This is funny how presented by John Morgan Sportswear and Adam. This is happening. It's a real thing between us. We are doing it. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun and here in season one episode one. We have our first guest and someone I really wanted to get on the show, someone I admire very much. Our visiting voice has enjoyed a brilliant broadcasting career spanning nearly 50 years, outstanding in any role, host, play-by-play, reporter, long-form interview, from baseball to horse racing. He's simply one of the best ever and a big influence in my career. We welcome in Bob Costas. Hi, Bob. Hey, Vince. How are you? Hello, Adam. Hello. Thank you. Welcome. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. So, who knew after all the awards and big moments that you've covered in sports that podcast guests would come to you this deep in your career?
1: Yeah, that's another box checked. <laughs> thanks for helping me get there. The light, it's a lifelong dream, finally fulfilled.
0: <laughs> well, that, that's why we're here. Uh, Bob, as a, as a kid, when you were growing up on Long Island, you had in the 50s and 60s all of these um, wonderful I voices. It. I'm sorry.
2: Can you, hello? can you, can you hear us still? No, but,
1: but you got a clean break if you're editing it, it <laughs> right at the start of the next question. Okay. Right.
2: Uh, are we, are we back now? Can you hear? Okay? Hello? Hello.
1: Now I got it. I, an I, did, I didn't though when he was posing his second question. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. You
0: ready Ed? Yep. Well, Bob, as a kid growing up on Long Island, in the 50s and 60s, you had all these wonderful broadcast voices around you. I'm wondering if, if that was the inspiration to follow this field, or was it a combination of
1: things? A combination of things, but for me, even as a kid, the broadcasters were inseparable from the games themselves. And you're right, at that time, and radio was more important than television, actually, at that time in the late 50s and through much of the 60s, but some of the greatest voices in sportscasting history happened to be congregated in New York at that time. Uh, Vin Scully had left for Los Angeles with the Dodgers. So I don't really remember him with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I caught up with him eventually uh, in Los Angeles. But even then, Red Barber and Mel Allen were doing the Yankee games. When the Mets came into existence, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner Ralph was not a classic broadcaster, but certainly Lindsay Nelson was one of the great broadcasters of his time. Marty Glickman was calling Giants games on the radio, football Giants games and Knicks games. And Marv Albert was his protege and the young Marv Albert on the radio doing the Knicks of the late 60s and early 70s is about as good as it ever got in any sport. And that's just a short list of some of the broadcasters who were just part of the atmosphere if you were a sports fan all of that was seeping in along with the network games that you watch so you're listening to chris Schenkel, and you're hearing keith jackson and whomever else Pat uh, ray scott calling green bay packer games or jack Whitaker, a tremendous essayist as well what? as a uh, straight sports broadcaster um, it was just kind of part of it and when i would play wiffle ball or stick ball on the street or shoot baskets in the schoolyard. The sounds of one announcer or another were running through my head as I did with so many, what so many kids did dream about maybe one day playing in the NBA or in the majors. But I was smart enough, Vincent Adam to have it occur to me by the time I was maybe nine or 10, that if I was ever going to get a Yankee stadium or Madison square garden without paying for a ticket, it was going to be, where Red Barber and Mel Allen sat, not where Mickey Mantle stood in center field. So I thought if I'm going to have a chance to make a <laughs> career out of this, it's going to be with a microphone, not with a or a glove.
2: <laughs> it's phenomenal. And I'm sure there are possibly some imitations of voices uh, during those days playing stickball as well.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, all of us did eventually our bad Marv Albert impressions <laughs> and then everybody had a bad Howard Cosell impression and (laughs) later people did Vin Scully, whatever. And when you start out, and I'm sure your dad will attest to this, when you start out whether consciously or unconsciously you are copying somebody but eventually once you kind of get the nuts and bolts down if you don't establish a style of your own, if you sound too much like Marv Albert or too much like Vin Scully or whatever the case might be, you're only going to be a pale imitation of the original. And you don't wanna be that. You can admire someone else and be influenced by them, but you really shouldn't try
0: to copy them. No, my influence was Joe Tate calling Cavs games. And of course everyone did Joe Tate back then, but you're right, eventually you find your own voice. Uh, Bob, we've been in this business a long time and I'm wondering how you feel about the influx of opinion in journalism. And certainly it's made its way in some of the morning talk shows and successfully on Inside the NBA on TNT. But I'm wondering about that sort of opinion aspect that we, at least I, was taught to stay away from early on.
1: I think it's a direct function of the explosion of cable TV. Used to be in the era we were talking about just a moment ago, the games came on and maybe you had a little bit of pregame and postgame. And there were no... 24 7 all sports talk stations. There might have been a nightly show in this market or that that went for an hour or two hours of sports conversation, but it wasn't the hard edged heat over light stuff uh, that we see too much of now. But now you have cable operations that have to fill time 24 7, radio stations 24 7, and a proliferation of countless internet platforms. And the mere reporting of the games is not enough. They've got to fill that vacuum. And that vacuum is usually filled with opinion. Sometimes it's well-informed and insightful opinion. And a lot of times it's just bloviating in hot air.
2: <laughs> and speaking of those multiple platforms that you mentioned, um, you know, superstars get caught up in that as well. I mean, this is an era of what I feel like is unprecedented access to athletes outside of their games. And they're in turn expected to create and maintain 24 seven branded images of themselves. My question to you is, do you think the legendary fan favorites through sports like Stan Musial could have the same impact on this generation of fans that is so digitally inclined and and seemingly less interested in that face-to-face that he seemed to be so good at?
1: circumstances are so different Uh, when you talk about someone like Musial his career the beginning of his career actually predates television toward the end some games were on television most people were watching on a black and white tv set they followed the games on the radio so you were informed you could follow the games but there was still enough distance to allow for romance and legend and mythology and up to a point that's a good thing for sports uh now you're right not every athlete succumbs to it but many athletes feel like they have to have a, a constant presence beyond playing the games a constant twitter presence and i've never understood whether it's for an athlete uh, an entertainer or just the average joe why anybody thinks that the world is interested in their every random thought and for every time something really worthwhile is posted on Twitter, at least as I understand it, and I'm not immersed in that world, and I don't have a Twitter presence myself and never will. But as best I understand it, for every time something is tweeted out, and we're not talking now about reporters for newspapers or or broadcast news outlets who tweet information out in the moment, that's a different thing. But for every time someone has tweeted out a random impression or point of view, For every time someone might have said, wow, that is really insightful, and I'm glad I came across this. There are 10,000 times when a person (laughs) said something stupid that gets them in trouble, that they have to backtrack from, or somebody decides now that they're more famous than they used to be, let's go back in the archives and find something really stupid they said in 2012. The downside of this exceeds the
2: upside, so far as I can Mm -hmm. see by a tremendous amount wait a minute so those those primetime football editorials those weren't just on the spot i thought you you actually put some thought into those before you went on air i
0: did put
2: some thought into it (laughs)
0: imagine that maybe in some cases not enough but (laughs) but i did the best i could well i i think the best description of twitter i heard was it's something you don't get paid for but yet can get you fired so that that's the fine line <laughs> right. that you actually walk. That's right, um,
1: oh, and then there was also my early on assessment: a high tech, a high tech version of uh, the the men's room wall at a gas station somewhere <laughs> on Route <with> 66.
0: <laughs> nice, we could find that same tweet. Oh man, um, that's it. Bob in covering baseball. Uh, the style of baseball. Adam was a college baseball player. We watched the College World Series, which is now mm-hmm. that level of baseball is very different from what we see in the major leagues with uh, the influx of home runs. I don't see as many stolen bases. We're not talking about moving runners. Is, do you like what you see in calling games?
1: Not as much as I used to, but here's the good news. Almost everybody in baseball now recognizes that we have a problem here. And this problem is not old timers saying, hey, get off my lawn and back in my day, Sonny, because if you're just talking about the quality of players and young talent in the game, there's never been more of it. Appealing, tremendous young players. Shohei Otani, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Fernando Tatis, and Ronald Acuna, and Jacob deGrom, and Mike Trout when he's healthy, although by baseball standards he's not young anymore, he's he's a veteran, but still, you get my point, the game is brimming with talent and appealing stars, but analytics and modern uh, techniques for developing especially pitchers have skewed the game's balance to the point where it's out of whack. You want to see more baseball plays, like you say, Vince. You want to see the ball in play. You want to see runners moving. You want to see relay plays from the outfield. Um, Home runs are fine, but home runs should be a punctuation. And as Theo Epstein, who's now working in the commissioner's office after helping to uh, break the curse in both Boston and in Chicago, now working in the commissioner's office to figure out ways— to get baseball back in alignment, not just competitively, but also as an entertainment product, as he said just this week, a 10 strikeout game by a pitcher used to be a noteworthy achievement. Now it is literally the norm. <laughs> the, the strikeout rate in baseball per plate appearance is around 25%. Mm. That's Nolan Ryan's career strikeout rate. Nolan Ryan at his time was a unicorn. Nobody threw as hard, nobody struck out as many per outing as Nolan Ryan did, the all-time strikeout leader. Now the norm is equal to Nolan Ryan.
0: Well, that's that's because I I would think, excuse me, that's because there's no shame in striking out. There's no embarrassment in striking out now, whereas some of the all-time greats may go 600 at bats in a season and strike out 30 times, maybe. So it's okay. It's It's more accepted
1: partly because of that it's partly because there is no shame you still get paid if you strike out 150 times and if you bat 270 and drive in 100 runs and and hit 35 home runs you're still going to get paid so yeah it's partly because there's no stigma attached to striking out but it's also because pitching is so dominant now um the velocity is up the average fastball is 93.5 That used to be eye-popping. That used to be noteworthy. In fact, anytime someone threw 90 or more, it used to be noteworthy. Now you've got some guys consistently in the high 90s. Jacob deGrom is averaging around 100 miles per oh, hour man. through an entire outing on his fastball. And then on top of that, you've got higher speed braking pitches. If you're throwing 100-mile-per-hour fastball, and now here comes a 90-mile-per-hour slider with a wicked break on it, it's almost unhittable, even if you weren't swinging for the fences. So now baseball recognizes that. They crack down on the sticky stuff beginning in early June, and we already see a measurable impact. Strikeouts are somewhat down. Batting average is inching up. And I'm encouraged by the fact that baseball is willing to recognize that it has a problem, not just twiddle their thumbs, but be proactive about doing something about it. And we know that there's an always contentious collective bargaining agreement coming up or attempt to get one, a negotiation coming up. And I just hope the players recognize and their representatives recognize that sometimes their interests actually coincide with the owner's interests. And in this case, their mutual interest is in getting the game realigned to the point where it doesn't go back to our We don't want guys wearing flannel uniforms and hitting a dead ball and people arrive on trolley cars wearing straw hats and women get in for a quarter on ladies day. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the way baseball was in our lifetime. Getting it back to that isn't just better for baseball as a game. It's better for baseball as a business and as an entertainment product. And when the business thrives, everybody winds up making more money so i hope they can see their mutual
2: interest i don't know if, if you've had a chance but um you know I, I texted my dad earlier this year when the college baseball world series and the playoffs were going on and i didn't expect it but uh, in watching that it, it sort of reminded me of the the style of play that that i love about the game and i don't know did you have a chance to catch any any college baseball or do you watch that when you get an opportunity
1: yeah i, I saw some of it this year and that you do like that stuff. And remember, they're using aluminum bats, which ought to actually enhance the power game. And of course, you do see a lot of long ball hitting in college baseball, but you also see, Adam, more of what you're talking about. Uh, You see hitting it the opposite way. You see some small ball laying down a bunt, trying to play for one run in certain situations. Uh, Not only are most managers, because of analytics and what their front offices tell them uh, in Major League Baseball, moving away from that small ball approach, but even if a situation calls for it, you're late in the game or an in extra innings where a single run will tie the game or win the game, you don't have as many players capable of it. Mm. There are major league players who have never laid down a sacrifice bunt. Now, nobody wants Mike Trout to lay down a sacrifice bunt, nor should they. But most players, not just pitchers in the National League, should know how to bunt.
0: And I would think that's in your skills. skill set. Most that should be in your skill bunt. set, Yeah. No, absolutely. I think
2: Theo Epstein said um, stolen bases Maybe be like um, they, they pulled some fans and stolen bases may be one of the most exciting things that fans can see live. And, I mean, I think really at the root, it's just players in motion. You know, you're, you're either watching players stagnant or you're watching players in motion in, in whatever form, whether it's a triple, a double, a stolen base, just players in motion.
1: You know, you're a little too young to remember this, Adam, but <laughs> your dad certainly will. Whitey Herzog's Cardinals – of the eighties who won three pennants and came close to winning three world series. They lost two of them in the seventh game, but they were one of the great teams of the era and they were different even in their, their era from most other teams. They won pennants without hitting a hundred home runs as a team. In fact, Whitey Herzog's joke used to be in spring training. We hope we can break Roger Maris's record, which then was the record of 61 (laughs) homers. We hope we can break his record as a team but with <laughs> vince coleman ozzie smith willie mcgee uh for part of that time lonnie smith tommy her guys who could run they put pressure on the defense they weren't just good they were electrifying mm. they were simultaneously excellent
0: and entertaining that's yeah. baseball at its best yeah, it, it was and probably should have won at 85 as well <laughs> But that's another yeah, that story. For another podcast. Teams. That was probably their best team, but it slipped away yes. from, against the Adam, Royals in the World Series. It, it was. Adam has a question about one of the great talk shows in television history. Go ahead well,
2: I, more more of its resurgence. I, I I think you've noticed. You know, later with Bob Costas has has turned into clips on YouTube, and I don't know how yeah. many people are finding it that way, but it's certainly how it came to my attention. And I'm curious: is that how do you feel about it do you feel like it connects you to a different generation of, of viewers or um yeah just what are your thoughts on sort of later becoming timeless in the digital sphere
1: to some extent yeah i you can't measure it uh i got a call actually a text from somebody a couple of weeks ago a friend of mine and he, his plane was late so he's sitting at the gate and he says sitting at the gate watching you with dennis hopper and i think to myself <laughs> what Am I conducting a seance with Dennis Hopper? What's going on here? (laughs) Oh, yeah, he was on later. So you must have found it on YouTube. So I am hearing some of that. uh, And it's very appreciative. And it's very gratifying. One of the big regrets, and we all have some regrets, no matter how fortunate we've been. I left later in 1994, after six years. My kids were young. Uh, They were seven and five, or eight and five at that time. And I was commuting from St. Louis uh, to New York to do the sports stuff. And we would tape four or five laters in a single day on a Monday. And NBC had several Olympics upcoming. It was the year of the NBA on NBC. We were about to reacquire baseball. I still had a role in football. NBC News was also calling upon me for some things. And the research, and it was part of the reason why the, the show was good, The research was very intensive uh, for later. And I thought, if I take something off my plate, this is the one thing that will give me breathing room to take later off the plate. And I really regret that because in many ways, it was among the best things I ever did. And it was among the things that was truest to me and my sensibility. Now, could I have still been doing it now? Of course not. But I did it for six years. Could I have done it for 10 or 12? Yeah, I could have.
0: And I wish I had. But it, it shows you, Bob, that it has stood the test of time. It was so well done. Your interviewing technique was so sharp. And to be able to engage people like Paul McCartney or Mel Brooks, people who have been asked every possible question they can be asked and still find a way to make it interesting and fresh. And, and how much of a challenge was that, just trying to reach some of these celebrities?
1: You know, Vince, implicit in your question is an insight that comes from all your years as a broadcaster, which is you sit down with people who have been interviewed quite a bit, and even if they're game for it, they're going to go on autopilot if it's the same stuff uh, with the same tone that they're used to hearing. But I've found that if you've done your research, and some of it was research and some was just the era in which I grew up, I knew a lot of this stuff organically. I had followed it. I was familiar with it. So naturally, I did the research beyond that. But I could have, to a certain extent, interviewed most of these people off the top of my head. It wouldn't have been as good without the research. But I came to it with a certain appreciation and understanding. And then I supplemented it with the research. And when the, the interview subject realizes, either because they've already watched the show a few times and they appreciate it, and that's what led – after we have been on the air for a couple of years, that, that's what led a lot of people who ordinarily didn't do talk shows to be willing to come on the show because they knew it was something different and it would be worth their time. But when that person is sitting across from you and he or she realizes that this isn't just the garden variety, mail it in interview, then they naturally, in almost every case, become more engaged. And a lot of what you then get, especially in a long-form interview, isn't so much what you led them to it's what they give up on their own they're engaged now they're in a conversation not a formal interview and they just give you stuff and you're the beneficiary
2: well unfortunately we're tight on time so i am going to give you some stuff and i don't know if you'll uh we'll get to stories but a huge bonding thing between my father and I just growing up in the house has been movies and quoting movies. And we just, we both love them and they have a special place for us. As, so, as the only broadcaster to win an Emmy in sports entertainment and news, it's a rare opportunity to um, kind of get your take. And, and if you would, can I toss you some actors and their roles in the movie and just have you grade their performance? And these are all sports biopics, but I'm just curious okay. if you'd be willing okay. to grade their performance for us. So we're I, hope st- I don't offend anybody, <laughs> but go ahead. Oh no, please. That would be even better. Um, Robert De Niro, Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull. Oh, tremendous.
1: Tremendous. In fact, Somebody, a knowledgeable boxing person said at that time that De Niro became plausible enough to have been a professional fighter, not a champion, but plausible enough Hmm. to have been a professional fighter
2: at that point in his life. That's pretty impressive. Um, One of my personal favorites, Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks in Miracle.
1: Another tremendous performance. Not only did he look plausibly like Brooks, (laughs) but he got Brooks's body language. He got his attitude. You know, Kurt was an, an athlete himself. He's a baseball player. And he kind of understands athletes and, and the world of sports. He nailed that role.
2: Uh, Billy D. Williams and James Kahn, uh, Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo from Brian Song.
1: It's a weeper. It's over the top. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not the Meryl Streep or Lawrence Olivier School of Acting, you know. It was it was good for what it was, because in its time, it was very moving, and the friendship between a black man and a white man was not as often seen on American television, and that was a TV movie, as I recall yes. it. So yeah. they, they both fulfilled their roles very well, uh, but I doubt that either would have won an Academy Award for it.
2: Now, um, Dan Daly as Jerome Herman Dizzy Dean in The Pride of St. Louis. You know
1: what? You're talking to one of the few people who actually that. <laughs> I thought I might be. That. I thought oh I might be. I saw
0: it as well. Oh,
1: my gosh. You know, the problem with most baseball movies that, where the action becomes part of it is that the actor, even if he's a good actor, is not such a plausible baseball player. Um, so we, we go with willing suspension of disbelief. I don't really think that this was an accurate biography of Dean, and nor was it an accurate portrayal of a Hall of Fame pitcher's form.
2: Yeah, well, th- well, in that this- vein, I'm going to skip Field of Dreams. I don't even want to go down that road. Well,
0: I think the same could be said for Gary Cooper as Lou Gehrig. But, you know, of course, we accept his performance in that regard. But Adam w- and I were talking about uh, Thomas Jane and Barry Pepper in 61, which was the Billy Crystal film as well.
1: Vince, the casting there was incredible. Barry Pepper is a dead ringer for Roger Maris. <laughs> And Thomas Jane was close enough to Mickey Mantle. Thomas Jane had never played baseball at all when he was cast for this role. Never played baseball at all. And what Billy told me was that he said to to Thomas Jane, I just need like two or three good swings right-handed, two or three good swings left-handed, and we'll splice them all in. And I Hmm. just need you catching a couple of fly balls. So he was, not nearly, he was not nearly as convincing as a baseball player as Barry Pepper was. But I'll tell you what Thomas Jane got. He got Mickey Mantle's attitude exactly right. He was a really good Mickey Mantle when he wasn't swinging a bat. And a lot of that movie was not about baseball action. It was about the interaction between Maris and Mantle and, and some of the circumstances that surrounded baseball in that era. So you know, Jane
2: was very, very good as Mickey Mantle, and Pepper was great as Roger Maris. I mean, you, yep. you nailed it. And, and honestly, at, at my age, that was sort of my introduction to Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. I, I didn't see their interviews before that. You know, I didn't know much about them. And I thought Barry Pepper had makeup done to look like Maris. I didn't know what Barry Pepper looked like normally either. I can't believe
0: they looked that similar as well. Yep.
1: Yep. It was That, that was pretty darn good casting.
0: So Bob Euchre in Major League, now he's portraying himself He's not a, a living figure, but I think he steals the movie. And I would like, as someone who worked with Euchre, can you just share with us maybe your best Euchre story as we're wrapping things up?
1: Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But he had <laughs> lived many of his. Season. Oh yeah. And without him, without him tying it together, and you know, despite you know Tom Berenger and Corbin Burnson and Charlie Sheen and everybody else, without Euchre, it isn't as funny, and the the movie doesn't make as much sense uh now let's see uh some of my best euchre stories are off the air stories which we cannot use. (laughs) of course (laughs) so here here's one here's one that uh, that actually happened on the air game six of the 95 world series cleveland and atlanta and joe morgan is talking about his own world series experiences i'm in the middle uke's to my left morgan's to my right And Joe starts talking about the World Series in 75 and 76 with the Reds and Sparky Anderson and Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Tony Perez and et cetera, et cetera. And when he's done, have to be polite and have to amuse myself, I turn to Euchre. And this is during the World Series. So you got, you know, 25 million people watching. I turn to Euchre and I say, Euchre. Did you ever play in the World Series? And, of course, I knew he played in the Series in 64. And he says, well, I was on the Cardinals in 64, but when we played the Yankees in the Series, I was on the disabled list. Foul back to the screen, 0-1. <laughs> what was wrong with you? I had hepatitis. Breaking ball on the outside corner, a ball on a strike. You had hepatitis? How did you get that? The trainer injected me with it.
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> The point being, him point him being him that the way he helped the, the Cardinals win
1: the World Series was by being unable to play. <laughs> That's but question. I mean, how,
2: how many guys could just say, oh, they didn't want me to play? I mean, to just to take it there is it's one of a kind. No,
1: he, like? was, he was was and remains, by the way. He's 87 years old. And when you listen, like on uh, the Quick Pitch or the, the compilation of the highlights of that night's games, they often use. Radio broadcasts, and you hear Uke's calls of Brewers games, he's still doing their home games, it sounds just like he did 20 years ago.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I remember being a young reporter in Cleveland. The Indians were terrible in the uh, 80s. And when Milwaukee came to town, it wasn't necessarily Robin Young or Paul Molitor. I would try to find Uke, and he was great. He'd give me a, about a minute and a half of classic material. So he always came through for me. And Bob, you came through for us. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm a big admirer and um, I wish you continued success and do it for as long as you can because we really, we really enjoy you. Thank you. Thanks, Vince. Thanks,
1: Adam. Happy to hit lead off for you guys.
0: <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thanks so much.
1: All the best. Thanks so much.
2: See
0: you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Will? There you have it.